Don't make the mistake of believing that just because they're hyper-qualified, hyper-talented, hyper-intelligent, that they've got the poker chips to play the game. Welcome to Leading Forward, where we explore how successful leaders and organizations thrive in spite of, and sometimes because of, challenge and uncertainty. I am your executive coach and host, Christy Berger. Today, I'd like to welcome a very special guest. So this guest is so important to me because it represents the culmination of of all the stories and all the people that I've had the honor of speaking with um, over these last few months. And so today, I'd like to welcome Richard Gerver. Richard is a global thought leader. Um, He's an award-winning speaker, best-selling author, and at his core, he is an educator. Um, Richard, his, he has authored um, a number of books, and I'd like to just kind of um, give, a, give a, a shout out to a few of them. So we have Change, we have Simple Thinking, we have Education, a Manifesto to Change, and Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today. Um, Richard also has created and led a, a very popular LinkedIn course, LinkedIn learning course around change and resiliency and really developing mental mental toughness in yourself. And if we think about the last year and really what lies ahead and what many of us are still facing, uh, Richard is is kind of the the leader and um, expert kind of helping us and supporting us along the way and understanding how to navigate all of those things and more than navigate, but embrace them. So um, with that embrace, I'd like to welcome Richard. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Christy, it's honestly such an honor to be with you. And really, my parents would be so proud of that introduction. Thank you so much. That'll that'll be on their highlight reel. Thank you so much. Oh, Richard, they should be. Um, you know, I've had the honor of of having some time with you um, through some previous conversations, and then reading your book and and reading your book in preparation for today. Um, that your your book on change. I, I feel like I know you even more because there's some personal stories in there. And um, and I think uh, you reference in that is that some of our early experiences really do impact how we um, experience change, um, our comfort level with change, and, um, and how we lead change. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to kind of hear a little bit more, learn a little bit more about you through our conversation today. And um, I'd love for you on that note, maybe share a little bit about um, you know, your early experience and what led you to where you are today and, and getting oh. to do and support so many, um, so many around the globe around change. Honestly, Christy, I still pinch myself. Think I have no idea how I got here. You know, I think people, there are so many people in who have had experienced success and time in their lives where who often sit there and go, I have no idea. Um, you know, like imposter syndrome. I'm sure you have it. We all have it all the time. I keep thinking I'm just one moment away from somebody going, seriously, Richard, is that it? So, you know, <laughs> all of those things. That, but none of what I've I've got to in my life now has ever really been uber planned. You know, I never had one of those lives that was mapped out for me at 18. Um, I was very, very lucky, actually. I've already talked about them in jest, but I had a a mother, my parents divorced when I was very young, but my mother was an extraordinary woman. And it's only as I've got older and become a parent and and raised kids who are now both grown up and and left home, but you, you start to realize the courage it takes for a parent to actually, rather than 
push you down the direction they think is going to be the best and safest for you to actually stand back and say, no, this is your life. You go and lead it. I'll be here to support you and pick up the pieces if I can. And, you know, I think all of us that are privileged enough to have had our own children will know how challenging that is um, to actually be able to stand. I mean, you know, when I first left school, um, and I came from an aspirational um, Jewish middle-class family, um, you know, who would have wanted me to study an ology, to, to have become a doctor or a lawyer or maybe an accountant, right? And you can imagine that at 18, I announced I was going to be an actor, right? <laughs> well, my mother just, you know, she, she said, are you sure? Do you know what you want? Is this really? But then she stood back. And, you know, the weird thing for me is if one of my kids said that to me, I would have found that really, really hard, right? Particularly given all the investment in their lifestyle and wanting them to be safe and secure and successful. So I think in many ways, that's the reason I say that is because I think that's the point at which when I reflected and wrote the book on change, I started to read, that was the first question. Why have I been okay with it? Why throughout my life have I been okay with taking risks and jumping from what people would consider to be the traditionally safe option? And I think it begins there. It begins with my upbringing. It begins with my childhood and particularly with a remarkable mother. Um, because, and as you referred to, you know, young children, we're born, most of us, um, with a voracious appetite for change. You know, I'm yet to meet an 18-month-old child who's going through therapy because they can't cope with the rate of change in their life, right? And actually, if we think about it, you know, young kids just want change all the time. If they have to do the same thing in the same way for more than a few minutes, they go crazy. They're bored, so, yes. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we have this voracious appetite around change, around the new, around investigation, exploration. And I think because of my background as an educator, and I spent all of my career at, uh, on the front line working in elementary education with children between the ages of three and, and 11 years old, right? And what I saw were these people who just went on the most extraordinary journeys. But tragically, the older those people became, the more adverse to change and new things and risk and step, mm -hmm. stepping out of their comfort zone they became. To the point where when I started working with adults outside of education in corporations and organizations, and you start to realize that some of our most highly qualified, highly gifted, highly talented professionals are the ones that actually find change the most challenging. That really is what, what piqued my my interest in, in the whole subject. So yeah, you know, I went from being a failed actor because I was rubbish, basically. <laughs> Although my mother, bless her, never told me she that. Was, she let she, you're the, you're, she was your biggest fan, of course. She right? let me find it out for myself. <laughs> Thank God bless her. Um, and then I became, uh, went into education, um, taught, loved it, never thought I was going to leave education, but opportunities arose because of my career as a school principal, which opened different doors. Um, and that was, that was the moment I took the biggest leap. You know, I went from a really good position, a well-known school principal globally by then, um, with a good salary pension into becoming self-employed at, at 40 just under 40 years of age, right? So, And so when I wrote the book on change, I've kind of lived it as well. I'm not one of these people. I don't believe in being somebody that tells others and preaches to them. 
I only ever write about, talk about, consult on stuff I've lived through. Sorry, long-winded answer. I hope that was okay. No, Richard, thank you for giving us. It gives us that context, right? That you have lived through it and been able to kind of through your own pivots, been able to navigate change and actually at times seek it out. Um, sounds like so being having some um, introspection and your own experiences, um, you know, gravitating to other things that that may make you happier um, and but are riskier at times, too. So you said something there um, in regards to uh, six, the, that you found the most successful people um, have the hardest time with change um, and that you learn that through through this process. Do you could you ex- you know kind of expand on that? And what do you, yeah. what do you mean by that? I mean, there are, there are two levels on which I've experienced that. And, and going back, actually, to my early days as a school principal, because, again, it will root what I then go on to say. So just for people, for a bit of context, so I became a school principal very young. I was 30 when I was appointed school principal of a large urban elementary school that was failing. In fact, it was so bad the government were going to close it down. The only person that didn't know that, by the way, was me. Um, hence... I applied for and got the job, not because I was talented, but this is true, Christy, because I was the only candidate, because I was the only person that didn't know the government's plans for this school. <laughs> anyway, um, I took on, you know, I, I took on this, this job in this school and we went through a dramatic transformation in a I mean, really, we, we ripped up the rule book, reinvented it. Now, this is the, the first point of learning. We could be innovative and creative and change dramatically because we had nothing to lose. The community knew the school was awful. The children knew the school was awful. The government thought the school was so awful they were going to condemn it, right? So actually, when you've got nothing to lose, it's really easy to affect change and transformation on a on an organizational level. And the same is true, actually, on a personal level, right? So why do young children love change? Because they haven't got anything to lose. They haven't got anything hanging on it, right? And in fact, the more they fail, make a mistake and try again, the more they get praised by their parents and their family and their relations. So actually, it's only a positive experience. But obviously, the older we become, and the more successful we become, the more difficult change becomes. So When you look at the world's most dynamic organizations, the greatest challenge for them doesn't come at startup or development. It comes when they've been successful, right? So you take a company like Microsoft, who for for 20, 30 years led the way in technology. They were breaking rules, changing the game and the paradigm. But the more successful they became, the more actually they became snowed under by the legal elements of their business and intellectual protection and protecting their income through licensing rules. And so the company became dominated by accountants and lawyers, right? Which then stultified and stopped that amazing flexibility and innovation needed in any space, but particularly in the tech space that saw them quickly kind of go into a a reverse for a long period of time. They were in real danger as, as a company because they weren't innovating in the way the new kids on the block around them were. Um, I remember uh, interviewing Eric Schmidt a few years ago when he was the executive chairman of Google and asking him what his greatest challenge had been in his role at Google. And he underlined that because he said, you know, when I was brought in by Larry Page and Sergey Brin, he said, I was brought in by these two geniuses, these young guys who were just 
ideology, you know, driven by ideology, passion, vision, belief. They wanted to change the world. You know, their founding motto at Google was to organize the world's information and make it accessible for everybody. And the final part, which I love, and by so doing, diminish evil. That was their founding mission, right? And Eric was brought in, I think he was CEO at Hewlett Packard at the time. And he was brought in to help monetize Google because, of course, they weren't making any money. So anyway, Eric said, you know, when I arrived, Richard, it was the most exciting place I'd ever been to. People on every corner of the campus were just, what about, how about, why don't we, let's do, and people gathering from different, t- and just, it was, vi- he said, the most exciting place. He said, ironically, in the time I've been there, my greatest challenge has been our success because the more successful we've become, the more we've moved away from just being innovative and creative around our vision and our values. And we've become increasingly obsessed with what other companies are doing in our space. And he said, when I look back on our short short history, what I realize is that all of our greatest problems and mistakes have come when we've tried to react to what somebody else was doing. And he said, you know, our, my greatest challenge is to keep our people focused on our vision, our values, and their abilities. Which brings me on to the human aspect, because the other side of this, and the best way I can describe this is through the work I've done in sports. So I was asked to work in elite sports in this country a few years ago. Um, because they were, they found that a number of the most naturally gifted young athletes across all range of sports never made it to the highest level. They walked away before they got to the top level. And we really had to understand why. So whether that was in athletics or tennis or soccer or any other sport, right? We were seeing this pattern. And of course, what was happening was these kids were naturally gifted. And they were naturally gifted from the time they were three, four, five years of age, right? So they were used to winning. Now, the same thing is true in academics. The same kids have those natural gifts at schools, right? And they go through their education and their college careers and they fly because they're just, they have those gifts, right? But they reach a point in their career where they're surrounded by people as smart or in sports as talented as they are, or if if not more so, because that's where you go, you know, you funnel into that elite route. And what they realized, what we realized was that those kids had never failed. They'd never made mistakes. They'd never experienced real adversity. And the first time they did, they were already in their early twenties, right? And the point was because they'd never experienced it, they were paralyzed. They didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know how to cope with a mistake or failure or challenge. And so what happened in elite sports is those kids at 19, 20 walk away because they just don't have the resilience pool. And the same thing is true in our corporations. You know, you will have, I've I've seen some of the incredible interviews you've run and the work you do working in some of the big businesses you do, right? They have the privilege of hiring the brightest and the best. But the problem is we think those people are the finished article. What we fail to realize is because they're used to succeeding, they find the challenge of trying something new and changing really, really hard. Yes, I can see how that comes out. And I love the the almost the the visual, at least in my mind, of of those individuals, whether it be children or adults, where they come up and like you said, that peak for those that are watching, you know, they really funnel into that peak. Um, you know, when you reference there, you know, how organizations um 
you know, manage that or set those up either to fail or to succeed, you know, how do you see organizations that are succeeding and really understanding that concept and utilizing it uh, to leverage it to its advantage in order to thrive? And um, what do you see there? And, and, you know, for any listener out there that's leading, in, you know, that's in a key leadership uh, within their own um, respective organizations, you know, any insight that you have for them and how they navigate and cultivate that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a couple of things. The first is, and I'll give you another analogy because I hope it helps people, right? So imagine that your organization, and let's say, let's say you're a leader or manager in that organization, you're managing a team of graduate recruits or, you know, recent recruits or a team of young, gifted, talented people, or just talented people of any age. Let's not be ageist about this, right? <laughs> of any age, right? Yeah. And um imagine that every time you ask those people to embrace an idea or change or a challenge with you, you have instantly become the croupier in a casino, right? And they are coming in to play roulette at your table. And what you're doing every time you ask them to challenge their thinking or behavior or to to step out of their comfort zone or embrace a new idea, you are spinning the wheel and rolling the ball. And what you're doing is you're saying to them, come on, play the game with me. Now, everyone in that meeting, everyone in your organization or team, we make the mistake because they're there of believing they've got it all, right? So we think every day, every employee is coming in with hundreds of poker chips ready to play red, black, odd, even, even an individual number, right? Because they are great people, hyper successful, talented, educated. And the problem is that there will be some people coming in to your meeting, your challenge with a bag full of poker chips, right? And often, by the way, we all know these people too. They're the ones that are the ones that sometimes you wish would just shut up, you know, because they're, <laughs> they're always nya, 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 nya all the time. Because what they're doing, of course, is they've got that much in terms of self-confidence and resilience. They're chucking chips on red and black and on. Doesn't matter because if their numbers don't come up, they've got loads left, right? But then... <laughs> There are other people with as much talent, if not more talent, with as much to say, if not more to say, who are rocking up every day with one poker chip. Because the thing is, they've never gambled in their lives, so they've never accrued poker chips. But And they're coming into the meeting or to the workplace every day with that one poker chip, and they're saying, saying to themselves, you know, I'd love to play this game, but I've only got the one poker chip. And so if I actively engage at this point and I put it on red and it comes up black or odd and it comes up even, I've got nothing left. So I'm just going to fade into the background and let others take the lead. And of course, what we then do often as managers and leaders is we misconstrue that lack of involvement in those people as a lack of passion or care or ability. And often those could well be the people with the killer ideas. So the first thing to say, I would say as an analogy to people, and I, I say this all the time, is start to climb inside the people, the person, and start to ask yourself, how many poker chips does this person carry around with them every day? And the challenge then is, what can I do to help grow the number of poker chips? So every time they overcome a tiny challenge or something small, don't take it for granted. Go over, praise them, identify it to them, help them understand what they've done. Because every time you do that, you're putting poker chips in their bag. More poker chips they have, the more confident they're going to be to play the game in the future. And don't make the mistake 
of believing that just because they're hyper-qualified, hyper-talented, hyper-intelligent, that they've got the poker chips to play the game. I think we jettison so much talent around the world in our organizations because we we immediately go into systems, right? So if somebody's underperforming, what do we do? We put a system in place or a structure or competency programs. What we don't do is take a step back and go, okay, I need to look at this person on a human level. I need to understand a little bit about their backstory and, and, and how I can help put those poker chips in their locker. So I think the key piece of advice for me is, and it comes from my time as an educator, the more time you invest in those people on a human level, they will give it back to you in spades. And ironically, they will always be eventually the most loyal, the most connected, the most capable people in your organization. But you can't shortcut that. And you need to start with the human, not the systemic. Yes. I mean, you can underscore that, highlight that, and put some blinking lights around that, Richard, because I think that's the crux of, of it all. And there's something that you wrote or and I, I read that I just love that I think you just emphasized there is that, you know, system or structure, policy, technology, you know, changes nothing. Um, yeah. Only people do. Right. And so I think in your analogy of the, the poker chip, right, there the, the catalyst through that was the individuals, right? That was were the leaders. Um, and so I love that 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 you underscore that it still comes down to the connectivity, the human interaction and relational element there. I mean, it's really interesting, right? When you look at successful teams, which was the thing, you know. What do you notice? Well, the number one characteristic of all the successful teams I've ever worked with, and it's nothing new, and it's something you've covered over and over and over again, Christian, it's your expertise, is they have climates of psychological safety, right? Now, there may be some people who still think this is somehow some kind of soft, soapy, you know, unicorn-esque, rainbowy. It isn't. <laughs> it really isn't. Yeah. And the truth is that the most successful corporations on earth, the most profitable businesses, particularly those that have kept that going because of their innovation and level of change, at the core of every one of those teams is an absolute wedded belief in psychological safety. It yeah. really, really matters. Absolutely. I agree. All the research also supports that, Richard. You know, I'd love to hear, how do you say that that psychological safety, kind of the core, overlaps um, with change and, you know, change management or, you know, how to navigate that within a system? Well, I, I think the first thing, when you appreciate why we find change so difficult, both personally, but really in this context, professionally, right? And actually what's amazing in, if you think about the lived experience of the last year and what we can learn about change from the pandemic, it, it, it has amplified so much of what those of us that have worked in the field for a long time have been saying. For, and more and more people through their lived experience have now understood it, right? Which is change is only something people resist and feel negative about if one, the first thing, most important thing is they feel it's something that's been done to them, which takes away their control. Now, if you think about the pandemic, for example, the reason why we found it so emotionally challenging, forget all the other horrendous issues around health and finance, all the other things, right? If you just take that one instance, when last March, our leaders came onto our TV screens and said, we're shutting everything down. 
because this pandemic is sweeping the world. We don't know much about it yet, but it kills people, right? Um, part of the reflex there was, oh my God, I feel they've taken away my control. I have no control over my life now. I, I don't know how to stop it uh, affecting me or my family. I don't know how I can control my business or my workplace. So the key reflex in all of that, the paralysis that came with it, the anger, the all those phases, right, all came from that STEM thing of, I have no control. And when we look back on the last year, that's the number one overriding emotion, a lack of control. Um, and so any change in any organization, the, there are a huge number of people, particularly in top-down organizations, who the minute you talk about a change program or a change process, their first reflex is, oh my God, I was doing my job fine. I knew how to do my job. I knew what the parameters were. I, got, I was becoming really good at it. Turn up every day, know exactly what was expected of me. And what you're doing is it in one fell swoop, wrenching away that feeling of, I have have levers to pull which give me control. So we have to be highly aware in a systemic uh, and organizational capacity to find ways to make sure that everyone feels they are participants in, not just subjects to change, right? And a lot of that comes down to when you think about change process again, what is the most important positive defining part of it? Well, it's getting people to be curious enough to actively ask questions, to engage. So rather than presenting any change process as a fait accompli, what I say to people is, if you're going to go through it, what you need to do is pique people's interest. You need to ask questions rather than tell so that they can become active participants. And the minute you do that, you, you play a major part in switching their feelings of, oh my God, I've lost control to one of, okay, this is going to be interesting. There might be bumps. I might have anxiety, but I've still got levers I can pull, which allow me to feel that I'm part of this process, not a victim to it. And the other thing I would say is that in most organizations, when they talk about change, because of the way traditional organizations function are run and managed, is actually we don't really mean change very often. What we mistake it for is efficiency. So often people hear the word change, but what the process then does to them is say, we, you were failing, we were failing. So what we need to do is work harder. We either need to do more of the same or pile more stuff on top of everything else you're already doing. So those are the two key reflexes, right? The first and most powerful is, oh my God, I've lost a level of my control. And the second is, oh my goodness me, they're going to make me work even harder. And so as leaders and managers, if we're cognizant of that, we can, if we're skillful, we can play with the messaging and we can play with the, the, the way it feels to implement that change or transformation. So we negate both of those things. And if we do that, we bring people with us and at the same time create or, or amplify that sense of psychological safety. Yes, very well said. I mean, we're really at the core talking about sense of control and underneath it, security. 
Yeah. Right. Is that the core is the security and safety. So it, it does tie together. And, you know, you, you referenced there, you know, we're kind of looking at a macro level around organizations and ch- big systemic change. But kind of towards the end, you reference like to that individual leader level at a, at a granular level. What does a, a somebody that's listening that's been given this, uh, you know, this direction to implement this change are one of many changes. And is we're going to maybe even talk to and maybe we can bring it up here is, you know, the change back into, you know, the workplace, right? And so, so what is someone that is listening, thinking about, you know, what can they personally do as a leader um, in a granular level to help promote that sense of uh, security and control? Do you know, it's a really interesting thing because in, in the, the way you fashioned the question, you use the answer three times at least, I think, and that is listen right? Um, you'll have to forgive me because my American history is not going to be good as, as good as everyone listening to this. So I'm going to try and be vague just because I know you guys will know the facts. I remember when I was researching one of my the elements for my LinkedIn course, I, I came across, I've always been fascinated, by the way, um, in American politics. I studied it at school. I love American politics. I love politics, actually, not as a political animal, but I love understanding the human stuff around mm-hmm. politics, right? And so that started at school. But but recently, I re-engaged in the story of, of the Getty, Gettysburg Address and, and Lincoln's incredible history, historic moment, right? And again, whatever people think about politics, I think it's always important to look what you can learn from a president, a speech, a moment in history. And I read into it because as an English, you know, as a Brit, you have no real concept. I, I imagined this speech was going to be like the Sermon on the Mount, right? You know, some or some soaring oratory that went on for hours, you know, in the way that the great orators might have done. And so I had this thing, if I could watch the movie in my head, it would have been this incredible, like, pièce de résistance. <laughs> and it was only when I looked into it, I realized how short the Gettysburg Address was, right? About three minutes, I think. So 300 odd words, three minutes, something like that. And it was really interesting because I read an interview that somebody had done with Lincoln and said, you know, how did you know how to get the tone right? How did you know how to get the language right? And he said, because two weeks before I gave the address, for two weeks before I gave the address, all I did was spoke to the troops and people I was going to be talking to. And he said, when I say spoke, what I mean is I listened. I needed to hear what they needed to hear. I needed to understand the language they used. I needed to understand what was going through their heads and through their hearts and what they felt passionate about. So that when I was able to craft the the address, I knew I was speaking to their needs, their desires, their hopes, their dreams. And I think what's going to be really, really important over the coming weeks and months as people return to a more normal function of the workplace, I think that is absolutely the... Do not make the mistake as leaders of pre-planning the system and strategy and structure, right? We need to spend days and weeks as we reintegrate and relaunch the functional normality of our organizations listening to people. Because the one truth we know about the last year is that every single person's lived experience will have been different. Some people will have had horrendous years. Some people will have had issue, you know, horrendous emotional issues around their family or loss or breakup um, of anxiety, of all of the things that we know have been 
dreadful about this pandemic. But there are other people in moments in the year who will have experienced moments of great light, great joy, great opening, you know, a, a great awareness, um, whether it's suddenly reconnecting with nature, a, a, a better working pattern to their day, um, a, a, you know, an improvement in their relationships with their families, a sudden appreciation of different things that matter to them. Whereas a year ago, they left as one person, they're going to have a total recalibration. And I think what's really, really important as leaders as manage, and managers is we do what Lincoln did. And we just spend time really listening to the people who work with us so that as we, we evolve the systems and strategies, we do so based on knowledge of our people, not assumption of our people. Yes, well said. And I think what I, I hear in that, Richard, is that it's going to be, a, it's going to evolve. It will continue to morph and change as you listen, as you have those experiences, those collective experiences, those relative experience within different parts of, a, of an organization as well. This concludes part one of our two-part season finale featuring Richard Gerver. Be sure to monitor our YouTube page and podcast links for part two coming soon. Thank you for joining us. To listen to future episodes, you can subscribe to the Leading Forward podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. For those of you who enjoy the full experience, you can watch the conversations as they unfold at christyberger.com. Until next time, keep leading forward.